huge number of people come to London and Britain every year in praise of Shakespeare, making pilgrimages to sites relevant to one of our greatest exports. In London, they'll be delighted with the reconstructed Globe Theatre, or in Stratford-upon-Avon, they can see sites of his burial and his birthplace. But what many people don't realise is that Shakespeare was one of the first group of writers to produce work for playhouses. Because before these theatres were built in the late 16th century, actors were touring the country in troops, stopping off at inns and market squares. The first theatres that Shakespeare would have known so well were, however, destroyed in the mid-1600s, just as the playwrights were beginning to perfect their form. Evidence of the playhouses survived only in account books, diaries, a few sketches and, of course, the plays themselves. Until 1989, when the historic Rose Theatre and part of the globe were discovered and unearthed on the south side of the river in an area we call Bankside, which was, for a few decades, the West End of the late 16th and early 17th centuries. Although it didn't begin there. Julian Bauscher from Museum of London Archaeology explains something of these early sites of entertainment in London, the very first being in Mile End. The very first purpose-built playhouse that we know of in London was the Red Lion, built in 1567. Now we know that this had galleries, we know it had a stage and some sort of stage back, there are references to a turret, but we have no idea how big it was at all and it doesn't seem to have lasted very long. The second one was in Newington Butts, which is now the Elephant and Castle area, built probably 1575. We don't know very much about this one either, except that Shakespeare had his plays put on there in 1594, but it might even have been an existing house adapted. It might have been built as a new building. We're not terribly certain. But what is clear is that the theatre in Shoreditch in 1576 was definitely the first of the now iconic polygonal playhouse forms. Then there was the Rose Theatre. It was built in 1587 on Bankside. It was the first one built on the South Bank. And we now know an awful lot about it because even before we found it archaeologically, it was known through uh, a vast archive of paperwork concerning the building kept by its owner, Philip Henslow, and those papers actually survive in Dulwich College. Of all the contemporary theatres and playhouses that we have looked at, uh, the Rose Excavation was a much larger one than any of the others, so we've learnt more about it physically, which really rather complements the documentary archive, making it um, a pretty unique find. In this podcast, I want to understand more about these theatres, specifically the Rose. Who acted here? Who were the audiences? How were the plays produced? I also want to draw comparisons with actors and audiences at the reconstructed Globe Theatre today, through archaeological evidence, actors' experiences and academic research. I want to invoke an atmosphere of being an actor or audience member at an early purpose-built theatre. I've come to Bankside and I've entered through a black back door of a 1990s office block and in here you can see the foundations of the Rose Theatre 
at least a light strip which marks the foundations because they've been covered over for preservation. The site has been conserved thanks to the work of campaigners led by notable actors of the day, including Laurence Olivier, who apparently made his last public performance here when he made a plea for the preservation of the Rose Theatre. And it clearly worked. Julian Bauscher, who was in charge of the excavation in 1989, talked to me about its initial exposure. I think the moment when we found the actual uh, foundations of the Rose Playhouse was quite exciting and we had no idea how big it was going to get. We had hundreds if not thousands of visitors, there was a, an enormous press coverage all over the world. This was, don't forget, the first time that anyone had seen the physical remains of a building that Shakespeare acted in and wrote for, as did many of his contemporaries like Christopher Marlowe, Robert Greene, all sorts of others. I spoke to Dr Farah Karim Cooper, Head of Courses and Research and Chair of the Architectural Research Group at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, and she explained one of the instant astonishments of the Rose's archaeology. I think there was a lot of surprise about how small it actually was. I think there was always this kind of assumption that these were massive great theatres because all of the references at the time talk about them as being such, and they talk about them as... Um, as having you know, up to 3,000 people in them. Julian Bauscher concurs with her. I think one of the initial surprises was how small it was. It's only about 72 feet in diameter. And it was a, a polygonal building, which we guessed. The polygonal buildings seem to be quite unique to London for these, for these playhouses. Um, Bear-baiting rings of an earlier period were roughly the same sort of size um, and it's really a means of getting a maximum amount of people inside an enclosure um, to see a spectacle. I asked Julian Bauscher what he thought the influences were for the shape of the buildings. It was described as an amphitheatre by a Dutch visitor in, 60, in 1595 and that's just a, a Greek word meaning a double mm. theatre. Actually, very few Englishmen of the period would have been to Italy or Greece to see the great classical theatres. But certainly some of them would have done. I mean, the first one built in that form, which was called The Theatre, built in Shoreditch in 1576, it's probably no accident that it's using what was at that time rather an archaic Latin word. So he probably did know what he was building and what influences he had. Twelve years after the Rose was built here, the globe was erected and only a stone's throw away. This must have infuriated Henslow and Alain, who ran the Rose Theatre and who, for two years thereafter, moved their business north of the river to the Fortune Theatre. Regardless of the fortunes of the Rose Theatre, the globe anyway had a very short life. The Globe Theatre was built in 1599. The Globe uh, burnt down in 1613 and then a second globe was reconstructed on the very same site, um, and that lasted until 1642, when the English Civil War broke out, and then in 1644, all the playhouses of London were plucked down. The Puritans got their way. But throughout the short lives of these early purpose-built theatres, the opposition to them was forthright, as Dr Karen Cooper explains. There's also some uh, anti-theatrical literature that actually, in its... Um, sort of 
attacks against the theater um, tell us quite a bit about what was happening inside. While the plays were going on, there, the anti-theatricalists were upset at um, the themes of the plays. They didn't like secular drama. It was taking people's attention away from, from their piety and meditations on God and, and scripture. Um, and uh, they didn't like the fact that boys were playing the parts of women and they were dressing up as women, they were wearing makeup and wigs and they were kissing older men. So they felt that that was licentious and that it would actually provoke licentiousness in those who watched those acts. I wanted to find out more about these people or actors committing licentious acts in these playhouses. First of all, how many people made up a company of players? Anywhere between 12 and 16 principal sharers. Um, and these are the people who would be in, investing in the company um, and who probably would have the, the, the biggest parts and um, who were involved in the day-to-day -day running of the company. Beyond that, you might have uh, what's called hired men, the kind of stage management jobs, um, makeup, dressing. There might have been some tire women and tire men in the tiring house to help actors dress and that kind of thing. In 1997, 300 years since these actors trod the boards, the Globe Theatre was reconstructed after decades of fundraising, campaigning and building. On that stage, we can get as close to the Shakespearean experience as possible. I wondered if contemporary actors who are selected to form a company every year at the Shakespeare's Globe Theatre are so different from their early 17th century counterparts. I asked such an actor to share his experiences. I am David Sturziker and I'm an actor. My experience working at the Rose is fairly limited. About 10 years ago I was involved in an abbreviated production of The Jew of Malta by Marlowe. My experience of the Globe is more extensive. I've done six different shows there. I wondered what it felt like to step out onto the Elizabethan stage as a contemporary actor. I remember vividly the first feeling when stepping out in a performance. I'm pretty sure it was a matinee and it was Winter's Tale. And you walk through the tiring house doors at the back of the stage and you step on and there's this enormous sea of faces at round about your foot level because the height of the stage is sort of head level for, for a lot of people. And it's a, it's a really exhilarating experience. I was in a room full of 1,500 other people and we were about to perform in front of them, which of course normally in, in a, in a theatre where the audience's lights go out and your lights come on, whereas at the Globe, much more of you is aware of the audience. No audience member is ever that far away from the stage. And when I was there, you, you do get that sense that you're trying to connect with every single audience member, wherever they may be, and that even if they're in the top of the top gallery, they're not that far away. But the intimacy that David is talking about here was less possible at the first Rose Playhouse. Because after five years of its existence, the manager, Philip Henslow, made a few alterations, no doubt to suit the changing acting styles. Like many excavations of buildings, we discovered evidence for change, rebuilding, adaptation, which is largely an expression of changing fashion. The important changes that happened in the Rose transformed it from a regular polygonal building built in 1587 to a much larger, wider, slightly more horseshoe-shaped building created in 1592. The interesting thing about 1592 is that it tells us something about acting and acting styles because it's really the stage end of the building, the northern end, that was changed. The stage was pushed back slightly and extended so that it became more of a thrust stage in modern parlance. 
This means that you are acting, as it were, on three sides, and there's more of an intimacy to acting. It's, it's developed into what we call now theatre in the round. And this may be related to acting styles changing. One of the great playwrights associated with the Rose was Christopher Marlowe, who created these fantastic heroic roles, largely acted by Edward Elaine on the stage of the Rose. But with the emergence of a later style, and they were more interested in this intimacy between actor and audience, um, and the shape of the stage possibly reflects that. Most Western theatres are proscenium arch spaces, where it's almost like you're watching the television. I wondered then what the main challenges were for performing on this exposed, thrust stage. I think the main challenges about the Globe or an Elizabethan-inspired theatre are many, and they're different for the acting department, the directing department. There isn't really a lighting department. That, I think, is a challenge for the directors. Directors would often use lighting in order to tell the audience where to look, and you can't do that at the Globe. So you have to be very clear about what part of the story you want the audience to watch at any given time, and then it's the actor's job to command that attention. The way that the space is designed with a central door upstage centre and then two doors either side of that makes for quite cyclical staging. So actors can exit in the upstage left door and then other, the next scene actors can come in from the upstage right door. That's how quite a lot of Shakespeare's plays were written that the action continues moving and it just keeps people interested. You've got to keep the tension of the production, you've got to keep it flowing. David's really describing the importance of keeping the audience excited and entertained. And it's this, he goes on to explain, that is the greatest joy of working in this space, the wonderful relationship you can forge between actor and audience. The pleasures of performing at the Globe are uh, numerous. You can look an individual in the eye in the, in the groundlings and deliver a line or a couple of lines to them and it will feel like the line is being delivered to everyone. So that's it's a great feeling to have, that you can really connect with the people who are watching. There's all sorts of things that can happen that aren't planned and aren't within the confines of the play. So if a pigeon lands on the stage during a scene, then you've got to deal with that. And that's something you don't have to deal with in the majority of theatres. It makes it very honest, it makes it very real. There was a great production of The, the Tempest, and it's all set on an island, and some of the characters want to be there and others don't. And for some of the characters that are trying to get off the island, whenever a helicopter went over, they would wave at it. You know, they're, they're acknowledging what is going on around them in real life. From my own experiences of being in the audience at the Reconstructed Globe, you're certainly exposed if you're standing in the yard, but with that there's a sense of fun and interaction. Nevertheless, I think, as modern audiences, we're all very well behaved and we do what we're told. And I wondered if it was the same in the days of Shakespeare, Kidd and Marlowe. Were the audiences as attentive? During performances, were they eating or drinking, talking or shouting? The archaeological discoveries were particularly revelatory in terms of understanding what the audience was eating. As Julian Bauscher explained... Another interesting area that we learnt a lot about was eating and diet. And although we found seeds of apples, pears, um, even exotic fruits like um, figs and uh, other imported things, and nuts um, and small bones and uh, bits of fish, bits of crab, for example, which was certainly not common, 
and the bowls that they probably would have been served in because you could buy food and drink as you went into the playhouse. You could bring some with you, but there was no room for a bar or a foyer or anything like that in the modern sense in these buildings. So people did go around selling things. We know about water sellers, for example. It wasn't just the food. There's certainly evidence for a lot of um, smoking, pipe smoking. Tobacco had first come over to Britain in about the 1570s. The pipes of the time are very, very small because that probably reflects the price of tobacco. You can't afford very much, so you have a very small pipe to put it in. And we did find a number of these very early examples dating from the 1580s or 1590s, which is quite interesting. And we know that smoking and drinking was going on and it's nice to find these things that tell us about everyday people in those buildings at the time. If the audience was eating such food inside the theatre, I still wondered what demographic made up an original Globe or Rose audience. All sections of society were um, present at the theatre. Merchants, prostitutes, children went to the theatre. We have references to a lot of really young people in the playhouses. The way in which the theatres are shaped, there is a yard for standing um, in the centre. And that was pretty much where the groundlings, as, as Hamlet refers to them, used to stand. Um, and they would pay a penny to get in. So it was usually the working classes. And Thomas Decker has a satirical portrait of them. that They're the ones who glued in together because they were wearing their greasy aprons from you know, the butchers and the tanners. And then uh, there were two more levels of galleries um, above that. And the thinking pretty much goes that the higher you go, the higher level of society you were. There were also lords' rooms um, that were on the um, upper gallery of the stage itself and gentlemen's um, boxes, we believe, on the sides of the stage. You could also um, wear your finery and be seen by everybody and so it was more of a, a status thing rather than whether or not they could see what's happening on stage all the time. From what Dr. Karen Cooper says, it sounds like some members of the audience went to the theatre to be seen as much as to see. I asked David if he thinks audiences at the Globe today are any different to audiences of 400 years ago. Elizabethan audiences would possibly have been rowdier. There would have been more of them, possibly twice the number of people in the theatre than there are today. I think it's a controversial issue as well, just how rowdy they would have been, because they would have gone there wanting to see a play. So there probably would have been a fair amount of concentration on what was going on on stage. But people didn't tend to leave the theatre, and because productions would have lasted three, maybe three and a half hours, so there was an awful lot of business going on, selling things in in the audience and... So it's up to the actors to really command the attention of the audience. So I think if the audience today were as rowdy as then or as as busy as then, then it would just mean the actors would have to up their game. I like to think that during Elizabethan Jacobean times there would have been a fair amount of interaction. I don't think the audiences then would have been shy to let the actors know what they thought of it. I'm sure there would have been instances when actors would have turned to the groundlings and given them a piece of their mind as well. I was also curious to find out if there were differences in the rehearsal process for actors then and now. Obviously the preparation was very, was very different. They would have just been given their role, which was a roll of paper with all their lines on it and then their cue line on it. So it meant that the actors had to listen very carefully and when they hear their cue line, which they've learned, then they know it's their turn to say whatever has been written for them. And they would have had probably several plays in their head at any one time to perform in, in, in a repertoire. 
Dr. Karim Cooper backs this up. And uh, they were repertory companies. They would play as many plays as they can get their hands on over the summer months from probably April, May until September, October. And some believe that at the Rose they might have been performing all year. But the idea also was to to get inside and to tour and to play at court. And um, and eventually the Kingsmen had an indoor theatre after 1608. So um, they would have wanted to or tried to play all year long, though some of that may have been broken up into different venues and a combination of touring. They were constantly busy. They would perform maybe 30, up to 36, 37 plays in one season. How on earth could they remember so many plays for one season? Dr. Karen Cooper explained to me why that was. They had a very different rehearsal practice. They, um, they had a different capacity for memory because of the type of work that they did at grammar school on memory. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so there were different skill sets for actors in that period. So even with such a good memory, given that they were churning out plays, all with varying demands, comedies, tragedies or histories, in the way that actors don't do today... I wondered about the quality of the acting. How effective were the actors in stirring the audiences? There's a witness account of a performance in Oxford that's, that talks about how amazing and how moving Desdemona's performance was. And we're talking about a boy actor. So I think people were moved, and I think the expectation was that there would be an emotional response to, to the drama, whether it's laughter or sadness or fear or anxiety, uh, whatever it was, I think... It wasn't just the language, it was the performance that would have, would have evoked those responses, as it were. So, despite the distracted audiences, made up of people of all ages and levels of society, they all had a desire to be moved. The actors were there to stimulate emotions, which they did, despite having over 30 plays in their heads at one time. And although today we may have been stirred by the magnificent acting of David Sturziker, It was Richard Burbage and Edward Alleyne who lit up the original theatres. Edward Alleyne in particular, whose stage presence was mocked in Shakespeare's Hamlet, was not just an actor. He had more feathers in his cap, as David explains. He performed in lots of Marlowe's plays, Tamburlaine, Dr Faustus, I think Jew of Malta. Some people think that he probably would have been written for And then he went in business as a theatre owner alongside Philip Henslow and the the two of them put money into a couple of Elizabethan theatres and Alain went and bought huge amounts of land in Dulwich and founded Dulwich College, which happens to be my old school. So Edward Alain went from being a a travelling player to a very wealthy theatre owner and landowner and founder of Dulwich College. And it is to Dulwich College where we go next, following the great actor... Edward Alleyne deeper into South London to discover what he started 